you are listening to Polity 101, Shape and Form, a sermon included in our Divine Physiology series, taught at Hookesson Baptist Church in the spring of 2009. And now, Pastor John Boulay. Somewhere in this sermon series, which we're uh, closing in the next two weeks, Divine Physiology, it seems appropriate to talk about church structure. If we're going to talk about the body of Christ, it seems that at some point we should talk about the skeleton, whatever the frame is that gives us shape and structure. And so the last two weeks of this sermon series, I'm going to spend talking about church structure, church polity, and particularly the offices of the church, most notably the deacons, because we're in deacon nomination season there are four deacons that need to be nominated at this time. And over the next uh, June 7th and June 14th, there'll be ballots available for nominations. But I want us, as we move into this, to kind of approach this with renewed thoughtfulness. Um, and I want to spend a few weeks talking about it. But it's a little difficult to talk about something like deacons. I can't just jump off and talk about deacons because our church is, uh, is kind of a mixed bag. So what I would like to do is do an experiment. If, if, if you wouldn't mind, if everyone would please stand up. I won't embarrass you. You're safe from embarrassment. And I'm as interested, I've never done this, so I'm as interested to see what will happen as you are. Maybe you're not interested. I'm interested. If you consider yourself kind of a dyed-in-the-wool Southern Baptist individual, if you, for about as long as you can remember, have kind of been in the Southern Baptist community, would you please sit down? Do you see that? That's like 12%. Now, if you... So my experiment's working. If you... If you had all sat down, I would have gotten really short. Uh, if, if you don't consider yourself like Southern Baptist by trade, but Baptist, some kind of Baptist, Independent Baptist, American Baptist, but Baptist-ish, would you please sit down? Okay, so there we go. Now look around. This church is populated with every kind of hybrid Christian you can imagine. I mean, look, more than, it looks to, appears to me, and I have the best vantage point, that more than half are still standing. Would you please sit? Everybody please sit. What I mean to say is, is those who are still standing either came to know Jesus in this church, so this is the first time that they've really come to know Jesus, or they were previously Methodist, or Lutheran, or Presbyterian, or Church of Christ, or Brethren, or Mennonite, I could go on, or Catholic, I could go on and on and on about the denominations that I know are represented here, at least the traditions that are represented here on this very morning. If this is the first Southern Baptist community you've ever really partnered with, would you raise your hand? Look at that. Again, that's almost half. If this is the, if you didn't even know you were in a Southern Baptist, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But needless to say, <laughs> needless to say uh, I, there's no way I could begin to talk about deacons here and expect that everybody would be starting in the same place. There would be, there's either a host of different definitions or you have no idea what a deacon is and you have no context in which to put it. So I kind of feel like I want to get to deacons, I want to talk about the offices of the church, but I can't get there as quickly as, as one might hope because we have to talk about it. I think of it this way. For some of you, if I just jumped into deacons, 
It would be like, uh, have you ever had a meal at an extended, a distant relative's house? So you're doing like Thanksgiving with a distant relative, but everybody else there is immediate family. So you're the distant cousin, but everybody else is buddy-buddy, you know, and so your cousin, you know, everybody's, ha, 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 and they're having this big joyous dinner, and, and, you know, your cousin Charlie says to his cousin Sam, hey, Sam, do you remember the time with the silly putty? And the whole table goes, ah, ha, 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 and you have no idea what they're talking about. You're just sitting there, and you feel awkward, so you kind of do the fake laugh, like you, you're supposed to know, but you don't know. That, that's how I think some of you would be if I just started talking about deacons. You'd be Okay? And I think for others of you, it would be, it would be as if you, you have an idea of the term, but when I talk about it, it's a different idea than when you talk about it. So I'm saying, deacon, you're going, I'm hearing you, I'm hearing you, but you're not hearing me because your tradition has deacons as well, and, you, and your idea has deacons. So let me give you an example of that. In the Air Force, the third rank of officer is captain. O3, captain. Now, there are different kinds of captains in the Air Force. If you're a captain and you're a pilot, you're just, you're just now starting to get decent at your airframe. You're just now no longer a liability. People are finally giving you some respect. But you have never, ever supervised a single person in your life. You've been in for seven years, and you've never supervised a single soldier. Versus if you are a captain in the Air Force and you are a maintenance officer, you would likely have 300 men and women beneath you. Very different kinds of captains. Now, in the Navy, they have captain, but in the Navy, captain is the sixth rank of officers. So that's one rank shy of admiral in the Navy. So usually when I'm calling up to a Navy base to get a hotel room for the night, I make sure I tell them I was a captain because I'm like, maybe they'll think I'm, I'm really important. But and here's another thing about in the Navy. So in the Navy, a captain is a really, really important guy, but on a ship, regardless of your rank as an officer, if you are command of the ship, you're what? You're the captain. So you may be a lieutenant commander who's captaining a ship, which may have a captain, 06, on board, but he's not the captain. He's just a captain. And if you happen to have some Air Force captains with you, there's some other captains, but they're not the captain, and they're not the other captain. Do you see what I'm saying? We, we could have different ideas. Maybe you don't. But, but at least you see why I might take some time to get to deacon. Because I might say deacon, but your deacon is a different kind of deacon than my deacon, which is different from the other people's deacons. But they're all deacons. So, two weeks. And I'll say this. Um, I've actually, for those of you who are note takers, this is going to be really teachy and not so preachy. And I'm going to have to move fast because I have a little less time than I had thought. But this will be kind of teachy, not so preachy. And I have outline coming up for all you outliners. So as atypical as it is for myself, I thought if I'm going to be teachy, you should get an outline. So you can follow along. There'll be four points if I move fast enough. Otherwise, there'll be three. (laughs) Okay, um, let me begin by saying, or at least begin our, our plunge into church structure by saying that in the latest, the last half of the 20th century and into our own time, uh, there has been a perceived, uh, a general perception or a feeling that there's something wrong with denomination. There's been an increasingly anti-denominational sentiment among many churchgoers. There's a, there's a, you, you probably identify this, this kind of, I'm not Baptist, I'm just Christian 
You've probably heard that, right? We've probably even said that, because at times it's the appropriate thing to say. But it certainly has been kind of an increasing sentiment, or a sentiment that has certainly taken root among our generation. About the past 50 or 60 years, it's continued as such. And and there's good and bad reasons for that. But um, amidst all of that, there is growing or has grown kind of an attitude that church structure, church polity, whatever, whatever you want to call it, the government of church, is kind of a necessary evil. That it would be nice if we could just do all this without committees and without, you know, all of this, without the, the, the tree diagrams, all of that. It would be nice, and, but we kind of concede that we have to do it. But when you read, when, you know, if you're in seminary and you're reading people writing, there is an active attempt to try to reduce structure with this feeling that, Really, if we, could, if we could be better Christians, we could, we could do without this. And so you'll see certain movements, the missional church movement and evangelicalism, which is us, we're evangelical, the missional movement or the emergent movement or even the house church movement. There's a lot of good things and some bad things in all of those movements, but all three of them are plying their way towards less structure. As if it's kind of bad. And which brings us to our first point this morning, that church government is not merely a human construct in which we conduct religion. Church structure is not bad. It isn't a concession so that you and I can worship. It isn't something that we've invented in order to kind of get what God wants done. Church structure is given to us by the Lord and is good for worship. Now, there are plenty of problems with church polity. Uh, So uh, that would be a very long sermon if we wanted to nitpick what's wrong with church or church government. That's not the goal. But I do think we should, should point out that the inherent problem to church structure is not the structure, it's the people. God gives us a good structure. We just kind of mess it up at times. But it's good. It's given to us, and it helps us order, order our lives. This is what's said, uh, what Paul writes in Colossians 2.5. And I've put all the scriptures on the screen today so that you can follow, because we'll be moving quickly. Colossians 2.5 says this. Paul says, I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is, is what he says. In 1 Corinthians 14, which is an entire chapter dedicated to the order of worship, Paul's entire, you could essentially name 1 Corinthians. Would you guys just get over it for crying out loud? That could be the subtitle to 1 Corinthians. This is what Paul writes in the 14th chapter, in the verse 33, says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And he ends the chapter in verse 40 by saying, But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And in Romans 13, Paul gives instructions to how we should submit to secular authority, which, albeit church, is not secular authority. But if the principle exists in the secular realm for Christians, how, should we not be able just to extend the idea to the, within the church? If God says, the secular authority is a good idea, it seems appropriate that we could just draw the line and say, well, obviously Christian authority is a good idea. And he says in the first verse, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Church structure is good. It isn't invented by us. It's not a concession by us. It's good. There's also this feeling that church structure, uh, the kind of critique is that it's not, it's not organic enough. 
that is kind of static or stale or bureaucratic. And I would disagree with that as well. I would say the church structure or structure in general, organization in general, is certainly an organic idea. As humans organize, you put three people in a room and they're going to organize. They're going to organize something. They'll have a bake sale by the end of the day. We are just organizing creatures. That's what we do. We're political and we organize. So organization in and of itself, in my mind, is certainly an organic idea. And I began this sermon series by saying that the church is not an organization, it's an organism. But that's not to say it doesn't have organization. An organism is so much more than organization. My, My point is saying that it isn't simply an organization. It's so much more than an organization. But if we think of ourselves as the body of Christ, how complex is the organization of our body? It's highly structured. And so it is both good and it's, it's, it's organic and it, in many ways it's living. And we should be mindful of that. And because of that, we should acknowledge the fact that God has given it to us and we should be vigilant. We should, be, we should ask ourselves, if it's good and if God has given it to us, what ought it look like? And we ought to go after that. We ought to care what God thinks about church structure. Now, I know many of us day-to-day don't, but we ought to. We ought to. And I know many of us come here and just assume that this church is doing it okay, and it is doing it okay. But we can do it better, and we ought to be doing it better. So we're going to turn to Scripture, and we're going to see what does God say, what does the Bible say about what church structure ought to be. But before I do, I want, I want to... I want to Uh, Before I talk about actually the God-given instructions on structure, I want to kind of caveat it or preface it with this, this, this example. The teachings of Scripture about church government are clear, but they're incomplete. They are clear teachings, but they they lack detail. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is they're clear in the sense that the the there's a consistent teaching of Scripture along the same lines that the narratives which tells stories about what's happening with the church, echo those very same teachings that when Paul or the other apostles actually teach on it, it's in harmony. So we know, this, we know about what it's supposed to look like with clarity. There's not competing views in Scripture. Certainly in church there are. But in Scripture, I do not believe there's competing views. But it's incomplete in the sense that it doesn't respond to everything. There's not this kind of breadth. It's not typically the topic of conversation. It's typically something we have to infer from something that's being said. It's in the background. and In fact, we think much of it is simply assumed by the, the, the writers of Scripture that they don't talk about it. And so it's, com- it's clear, but it's incomplete. It would be like if you read something which said it barked, it wagged its tail, it likes to go on walks, and it eats round little brown food. You'd say, I know with clarity it's a dog. I'm reading about a dog. I'm not reading about a kangaroo. I'm not reading about a mouse. I'm reading about a dog. I know it is a dog. How big the dog is, I don't know. Does the dog like to go running? I don't know. How, does the dog, how loud does the dog bark? I don't know this thing. I don't know what kind of dog it is. I know it's a dog. I just don't have detail. That's what we know about church. We know with clarity what, what God, the general principles God wants us for church as far as structure goes, but we don't know with a great a distinction or detail everything that's to be said. So that said, I'm going, to, I'm going to lay forth to you what I believe Scripture says about church, and then we'll go to define that. I believe this, that Scripture teaches that the congregation, that's the congregation alone, this room, you, 
I believe that the scripture teaches that you are responsible before the Lord for the health and the life of this church. When I say that, I'm saying that there's not a bishop who's responsible for the health and life of this church. There's not a presbytery that's responsible for it or an assembly. There's not an association of denominational churches. There's not a group of elders in this church that are responsible for the health and life of this church. The pastor is not responsible for the health and the life of the church. You are. This congregation, this room, in fact, this room is responsible for the pastor. You called me. I didn't call you. This room is responsible. Now, there are a number of ways that it's said so in Scripture. And you, by the way, you can see how we may be heading towards the idea of deacons, why this is important to begin with. That we need to be, uh, but there are a number of things in Scripture. There's one exception that I want to say before we, we, we read some of these Scriptures, and that is the exception of the apostles. That in Scripture, the apostles receive a certain amount of authority over all the churches that does not exist today. Right? There are no more apostles. They do not. Now, I, to my Catholic brethren here, I realize that I have simply like driven by your mailbox and knocked it off with a bat, and I've just driven off. But I'm going to deacons, so you can zing me later, right? Uh, I mean, we, we're, we're, we're kind of heading in a direction. But in, this, in our tradition, our biblical tradition, we believe that the apostolic period has come and gone, and that God has left it to the churches to resolve the matters of truth. That's what we believe. So I will say the exception was for a short time the apostles, but since then it has sat with the congregations. And here are some ways that we can see that. The first way we can see it is in matters of disputes, disputes within the church. In matters of disputes within the church, Scripture has on more than one occasion turned to the congregation for resolution. In Matthew 18, this is what's said. This is Christ speaking. If your brother sins against you, go show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, what does it say? Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as he would a pagan or a tax collector. Who is the final arbiter there? The church. Not a bishop, not the pastor, not a group of elders. There's not an association. I can't call Mal up and say to Mal, hey, I have an issue in the church that you need to come in and make a decision on. You know what Mal would say? Mal would say, bring it to the congregation, the church, the gathering. That's the word, the gathering, the assembly. Bring it to the assembly and have it resolved. The responsibility for resolving that dispute lies in this room with the church. Here's another example. Acts 6, verse 1. In those days, when this is, by the way, this is the first occurrence of uh, mention of deacons in Scripture. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are well known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Okay, all, by the way, the, so the church has not yet spread from Jerusalem, so all 12 disciples are, are serving in the same community. So if ever there was a need where the d- disciples, the apostles of Christ could have lorded over and made this decision, certainly this would be one. 
There's a problem in the church. There's a dispute in the church. And what do the disciples say? They say to the church, you pick from among yourselves people of wisdom and honor. That's what the disciples say. They say, go figure it out. Go get, your, go get your deacons. Immediately they let go of that and say, you're responsible for that. Take care of it yourself, which is what the church does. So in, both of those, in that area, the church shows that the congregation is responsible to deal with areas of disputes. That's one area that seems pretty clear in Scripture. Here's another one. The congregation is also responsible for matters of doctrine. Matters of doctrine. And we're going to talk a lot more about this next week. But on the clear matters of doctrine, particularly as it relates to the gospel of Christ, this church, this room of believers, is responsible for preserving it. Here's a passage written to Timothy. So it's a pastoral letter written from Paul to Timothy. And this is what he writes in 2 Timothy. For, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around a great number of teachers and say what their itching ears want to hear. Who's doing the sinning there? Who's being held responsible for, for the wrong act? It's, it's the men of the church or, or the people of the church. right? But he's saying to Timothy, there's going to be a time when the church is going to leave the straight teachings and they're going to turn to the, to, to the wrong teachers. They're going to gravitate to poor teaching. They're going to do whatever they can do to have their itching ears hear what their itching ears want to hear. But Paul is impugning the congregation for that. Here's another way of looking at it. In Galatians 1.8. By the way, we're going to start a study of Galatians in two weeks. So this is, this is uh, coming, and I'm excited about it. But this is what's said in chapter 1, verse 8. Paul is writing to them, and he's writing to them about how the gospel is being mutilated in the Galatian churches. And this is what he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said now, so now I say it again. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. What is Paul saying? He's saying to the congregation, you need to screen the teaching you receive. That's what he's saying. He's saying you cannot sit here like a veal, just soaking up whatever comes your way, thinking this is right. He's saying you need to hear what's being said. You need to discern it like the Bereans. The Bereans heard Paul speak, and what did they do? They searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said was correct. That is a congregational responsibility. That is your responsibility. In some ways you have given the charge to preach to me but you are responsible to ensure that I preach the gospel faithfully. I or Terry or whoever happens to be here. It's your responsibility as a people. So in, doctrine, in matters of disputes, in matters of doctrine, and also in matters of discipline and membership, the church shows that it has responsibility. 1 Corinthians 5, the whole chapter deals with, with the discipline of, 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 of some major sin in the church. In fact, he begins with, I cannot believe that there was somebody among you doing this kind of sin. In fact, he says the sin he's doing, even the pagan world is, is disgusted at or aghast at. But he ends with this teaching, expel him from among you. And it's a teaching to the church, to the congregation. In fact, all of Paul's letters are to who? To the church. To the church that meets in Corinth. To the churches of Galatia. To the church that meets in Colossae. Uh, 
Colossae, to the church that meets in Thessalonica. They're all letters to the church. And it wasn't, we don't believe, and, and, the, and there's broad evidence on this, we don't believe that the letter was received and that it was read by the elders or read by the priest and that the priest simply interpreted what he wanted to the people. Rather, we believe that the letter was read before the congregation. If Paul the Apostle wrote me a letter, do you think I would keep it in my office? Coming on Sunday, Paul says, I need more vacation. I need a fast car with unmarked bills and all. No, no, I would take this letter and I would read it before the congregation because the, it is for the congregation. It's for the church that meets in Hocassin. And so we see that. We see that in 1 Corinthians 5, it happens also. 2 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8, look at this. This is speaking of, of another issue of discipline. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. What Paul's saying is that it seems that there was an issue of, of discipline that had happened in the church and the church kind of did discipline and then they kind of said, oh, when Paul hears out, you're going to be in so much trouble. When Paul gets here, he'll take care of you. And Paul's saying, look, the offense is essentially against you, the church. Not against the distant leader. The offense is against you. The offenses of this church are against the community here. They're against this body. They're against this congregation. So we need to handle it. And in fact, this idea of the punishment inflicted on him by the majority seems to many as though there was actually a vote. Like they actually had a business meeting in the sycamore room. You know, where they had a quorum and they had a vote. I mean, it seems that way from what's being written here. So we see, we see from the letters written to the churches, from the way the apostles write, because John and Peter say very similar things about congregations watching out for the teachers and the false prophets who come among them. They say, watch out, judge them, be on alert. We see that it is a congregational responsibility to resolve disputes, to resolve doctrine, and to deal with matters of discipline. Now, I think those are clear. Again, I think that we are left without detail. I think that there are times when I wish more would be said by Scripture. I think God gives us some freedom within limits. But I would say this, that history has demonstrated what happens when this is not observed. When the church, when the congregation gives up its authority and its responsibility to some higher echelon we have seen time and time again what happens. When we just assume that they're holy, they'll tell us what to think. We've seen time and time again that that has worked in reverse. That the least, the last people to wane in certain denominations are the congregations. And the fact that we, we watch it, particularly from the outside, you can see how often churches have been led astray from the top down and not from the bottom up. The responsibility is to us. This room. I think that's clear. Now, I think many churches are congregational to some extent. And by the way, the, the phrase is congregationalism. I think many churches are, are congregational to some extent. If a church has its own title to the property, that makes it congregational. Because if it doesn't like what the bishop or the assembly or the presbytery says, what does it do? It does whatever it wants. Because it owns its building. So... Title is significant. In fact, we own our title. That's a step towards congregationalism. Another step towards congregationalism is a church that can hire, discipline, and excuse their pastor. 
That's a certain step. If you don't like what the pastor says, you kick him out. Just not give him two weeks. <laughs> no. no, but you can discipline your own pastor versus somebody on high coming in and saying, here is your pastor. See, there's a major difference there. Who's responsible for the teaching? Here's your pastor, or you guys select your pastor. There was a pulpit team that canvassed the congregation. The process was massive, massive structure. To select a pastor in this church, is that bad? I'd say no, that's good. That shows a congregation that's taking responsibility. But I think the responsibility to a church, the congregational responsibility to a church is much much more than simply a title or the calling of a pastor. I think it extends to the preservation of doctrine, the resolution of disputes, and the, the, the calming of, or the performance of discipline when required. And I think those are just some clear teachings. I think that paints a general idea of what you are supposed to do. So that's what I think a congregational church is. I want to spend a few minutes talking about what it isn't. Here's some misconceptions that you have, that those outside looking in have, that we should not have, and I'm, I'm going to move fast. I don't even have a, oh yeah, I need to move fast. So, the first one is this. God is not describing a kind of Lone Ranger separatist church model. We may be responsible, but we're not out on our own. The goal isn't to celebrate our freedom or to celebrate our independence. We are simply responsible. So, I regularly speak with the pastors of Ogletown or, or of Bethany or the pastors in our circle we meet. I speak to our association. I want to do that. I don't want to be precedent setting without valid precedent. I want to, I want to follow and, and listen to wisdom and hear, and we should want to do the same thing. But that does not mean that when a mistake happens, we cannot point to them and say it's their fault. Congregational means it's our fault. It sits with us. Here's another misconception. God is not describing a certain kind of democracy. This is a government of the people. In some ways, it's a government by the people. Certainly, the spirit's involved. But it certainly is not a government for the people. This is a government of the people, by the people, for Christ. We're bound by Christ. We don't sit here and, and develop a form of government or a structure of church that tells us what our itching ears want to hear, which is the classic sin and fault of a congregationalist church, by the way. It's a church that starts off talking about Christ, knowing that it is not a democracy but a monarchy, a divine monarchy, but ends creating church to be a comfortable place for those who are involved to come and worship. That church ends up becoming a place where we get to hear what we want to hear, the way we want to hear it, and we get to sit in the way we want to sit and things look the way we want to look. This is not a democracy. Christ is at the helm. And I will say this, in leading into to deacons, as you're thinking and praying about who should be deacons, which you should because it's your responsibility, as a church, as you're thinking about it, I ask that you do not nominate somebody because you like them or because you think they've done a good job or because you think they've served well. The office of deacon is not a reward for good service. That's a very democratic way of looking at things. The office of deacon is done in the sight of God for the service of God with the gospel of God. So you need to think, who is who? who is who is a, a, a holy individual who will rightly exercise the demands of the office, not, not who's earned it because he's waited a long time. So I, I just pray that, that you, you think about those things as you're thinking about who should be deacon. Here's the last thing. 
The last misconception is that being congregational does not mean we're kind of an infallible community. The fact that we are congregational does not mean we can't make mistakes. The structure itself doesn't preserve us from wrongdoing. It simply impugns us when wrongdoing occurs. We're going to make mistakes. It's just the congregational structure says, when we do, it's our fault. It's the fault of this room when we make a mistake. So that's what I think church is. That's what I think church isn't. But we arise at this question, where do I and Terry fit into this? Where do deacons fit into this? Where does church leaders fit into this? How does all that work? If, 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 if the responsibility and authority sits with you, then what am I? Well, that's next week. That's the short answer. What do I do with a verse like this in Hebrews? Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. What do we do with that? Like I said, next week, that's next week, but I will give you this, this, this short, um, this very short answer, which is, when I was in the service, one of the first things I learned which really impacted me, that seemed like more than just boot camp, that actually seemed thoughtful, was when somebody said to me, you can delegate authority, but you cannot delegate responsibility. You can delegate authority, but you cannot delegate responsibility. Which means, by giving somebody authority in the church, like myself, or like Terry, or deacons, or committee leaders, or whoever it is, you're giving them authority because you think that the church will operate better that way. It makes sense to do that structurally. But you are not giving them the responsibility. The responsibility lies with the church. So that when I go wrong, the responsibility is the church is to straighten me out. Which means you ought to be reading your Bible. You ought, to, you ought to not be sitting here thinking you're fine because somebody's at the helm who knows where to go. The person at the helm is listening to the Lord and to wise people in the congregation to understand where to go. Which brings us to our last point. Why is this all important? Well, I think it's important for two reasons. First of all is you, you cannot come and be a part of us without realizing that you're part of the body of Christ. You have a role here. You have a responsibility here. And I, I don't even care if you're a member or not in that regard. If this is where you come every Sunday, i got to do something with you. God has to do something with you. You're here. You're speaking. You're living. You're connecting. You're belonging. Well, that's, that's, that's 80% of membership. There's just some missing pieces that maybe we should talk about. But, but, but you're here, and, and my admonition to you is you share in the responsibility of the path of this church. You can't just sit on the sidelines and go, whoa, whew, those guys, man. <laughs> you share in the responsibility. And here's the last thing I'll say. It's important because any other mindset is a recipe for Christian mindlessness and spiritual atrophy. If you just want to sit back and just assume somebody else is taking care of your soul, nothing is being done for your soul. Take care of your soul. Seek scripture. Be diligent and vigilant in understanding scripture because this church is your responsibility. I believe the image of the body of Christ, as we've been talking about it for now seven weeks, is a congregationalist image. 
Christ is the head, and we are all parts of the body. There's no intermediate part of the body. It isn't like there's a head and then some other part that regulates the rest of the body. There's the head and there's the body. And each one of us has different roles, but we're called to serve in those different capacities together in service to the head, which is Christ. It is our responsibility. And I pray that as you consider the nomination of deacons, that this will flavor the way you think and that you will take responsibility for what you're called to do. Amen.